Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in your house once again on a beautiful Sunday morning. We thank you for each other and those that are in attendance here in this room or elsewhere. Lord, we thank you for the words of truth we were able to sing. And Lord, we thank you for the word that we will study here in just moments. Remind us of where we are and who we are, but especially who you are. And Lord, give us what we don't have to be able to take full use of our time together at your feet under the sound of your word. We thank you for our church and for this time. And we ask all this in your strong name. Amen. Well, it's my privilege to welcome each of you to church this morning. It's good to see each of you. And uh, it's just, it, it, I'm grateful in some ways beyond words just to be able to see your faces for a short time once a week. Uh, where this church seemed to be busy around the week. Uh, we're back again busy on Sundays, but throughout the week we're just not there yet. Uh, but the time we spend together here and now and just seeing faces sometimes is enough uh, because we never really know what's going on from week to week and what the person sitting beside you has been through or is fixing to go through and uh, to reset our Whatever, to hear together with God's Word is a gift. I was given a thank you note that I uh, was asked to read and am pleased to do so. We've each, uh, I'm sure, been praying for this family. But it says, Dear Church family, we would like to sincerely thank everyone for the outpouring of love and generosity that you have extended to us during the past month and a half of uncertainty. We've been so blessed with food, gifts, texts, flowers, calls, and continuous prayers. This complicated journey with Haven has been and continues to be very emotional and uncertain. The spiritual support that our fellow church members have shared with us through this very trying experience has meant so very much to us, and we greatly appreciate it. Although we've received encouraging news we're reminded by Haven's doctors that she is by no means out of the woods. We love each and every one of you, and we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for your love and prayers. Sincerely, Wendy, Todd, Haven, and Ethan Woodard. Continue to pray for them. And uh, there are so many other needs. And one mark of a loving church is to lift one another up in prayer Let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John, and our portion for today is going to fit right in line with these things that we've sung and uh, the thoughts that we've mentioned. And I want to read chapter 15, at least the first half of it, to you. As we do each week, we read through the passage, and then we break it down into pieces so we can understand and obey God's Word but uh, we'll read through verse 17 this morning, and we'll trust the Lord to show us what he has in store. Verse 1, chapter 15, book of John, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This is God's word. Let him who has ears to hear, hear. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, our Bibles open on a Sunday morning, gathered together as your church. As friends and family, Lord, do what you've done before. Lord, do it again. Speak to us and teach us what you want us to know. What's been here for a couple thousand years. But Lord, may we access it for your glory and for the purpose of bearing fruit. May we be useful to you. May you be glorified in us. May we understand and obey And may this time, again, be useful. I ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, this is chapter 15. We begin another chapter. We've moved rather quickly through chapter 14. And uh, what we read, not counting the remainder of chapter 15, which will be covered week after next, There are three relationships having to do with the disciples that Jesus talks to his men about. And uh, if I were to give you those three just to keep track of where we are, we look at the first two today, the third a couple of weeks from now. Uh, The first is the disciples' relationship with Jesus. That's the first few verses. And then secondly, it's the disciples' relationship with one another. That's covered there as well. And then once you get to 18 down through the end of the chapter, 
Jesus will discuss the relationship his disciples have with the world around them. Uh, these three will help us uh, keep track and organize what we're, what we're doing and studying. But the idea of the passage, the, the, the big idea that is, has to do with fruitfulness. And Jesus is using an illustration that these disciples would have been more familiar with than we are. Uh, there were vines and vineyards all over Palestine. And that was what they drank with their meals most of the time, was wine. Uh, we know about plants and vines if we studied in school, but we'd have to learn a bit to gather this the way the disciples did, but still, I don't think it's too far of a reach. The idea is the fruit-bearing of these disciples and their connection with Jesus. Also in there, we learned that the truth about real spiritual fruit is that it's not a human achievement. He spends quite a bit of time on that. Uh, but the result of abiding in Jesus. Jesus is the vine. They are the branches. There's also a warning embedded here. And that is that the branches that are not fruitful are purged out. Thrown away. Um, so is, as often the case in this gospel and the others, Jesus isn't simply encouraging us as if that's the only reason for which he died, to be a, an encouragement to us. He's also outlining the difficult but important work of service that he expects from his own that he came and bled and died for. So no less than five separate mentions of fruit-bearing, that is the pattern that is the theme of this 15th chapter. And once more, it's intertwined with what we've already seen as a, a very important connection between love and obedience and how those two cannot be separated. So there's, there's a, a, a foundation, our setting. Let's look at verse 1 once again. I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. So this is the seventh and final I am statement of the Gospel of John. He started out with talking about being the bread. I'm the bread. And then I'm the door. Then I'm the way, the truth, and the life was the last one we looked at. I am the light of the world. Here he's saying that he is the vine. And as far as the significance of, of that specific I am, the vine was, was a, a very real symbol of, of national identity as far as uh, the Israelites were. It'd be on the level of the stars and stripes for most Americans. Um, it was stamped on their coins. There was even a huge golden grapevine that decorated the gates of the temple. And there are those that speculate. It'd have to be speculation because we're just not told in the scriptures. But if the disciples got up at the end of the 14th chapter from the upper room and were in transit to the Garden of Gethsemane when the 15th chapter is, is being given, uh, that, the, that Jesus is teaching as they walk. It could be that they went through the city and passed the temple complex and were looking at this marvelous golden vine at the moment where he's telling them this. That's possible. Do we know for a fact? No. But the significance of it based on the passages of Scripture that we see in the Old Testament where 
Israel is regarded as a vine, every single last time in the Old Testament that Israel is regarded as a vine is a passage where they're being described as faithless and unfruitful. Where they're actually in need of judgment of God because of their lack of bearing fruit as he intended for them to. In other words, Israel is not a very good vine at all, which heightens the, the significance of what Jesus is saying. He is saying, Israel's not the vine, not the true vine. I am the true vine. And in the Greek, it's actually backwards. He says, I am the vine, the true vine, as if to put himself uh, in comparison or contrast uh, with this faithless, fruitless vine known as the children of Israel. He's also saying, and there can be confusion here, we'll make sure it's not, it's very clear, uh, the church is not the vine, the church is the branches. They are no more than an attachment to Jesus. And in saying that he's the true vine, he's also uh, making us think backward to the other things that he has said where he was true over against something that was false or insufficient. When he says that he's the true vine, makes us think of when he said he was the true bread, not like the manna in the Old Testament, or that when he was uh, the good shepherd against the robbers or hirelings, he's now the real vine against the idea of the false vine, which would have been Israel. So what we've got in verse 1 of chapter 15 is that even though the children of God, the children of Israel have failed to bear fruit, God's business is not over and he's not without a true vine. His purposes are not abandoned. Jesus has thus transferred the privileges and responsibilities from the Hebrew people to himself. And this is every bit as scandalous a thing to say as it was when he said he was the light of the world. Standing against those massive torches that would symbolize the light that God had given his children during the festival week. Uh, reminiscent back to the pillar of fire at night that would lead the children of Israel through the wilderness as the presence of God, the understanding of God. And here you've got this man who stands up in the middle of the crowd and shouts, I am the light of the world. Everything you've known about God that cannot be known by man that you think you know, I'm the embodiment of it. Of course they wanted to kill him. No man can say such a thing. The truth is he's the God-man. He's the Son of God. So this is just as outlandish as these other things. But this is said privately to these 11 men. And it's just really the first words and a whole discussion as to how he's going to relate to them by use of this illustration. You're the vine. Or you're the branches. I'm the vine. You're attached to me. And your fruit bearing comes from your attachment to me. Whatever you need to bear fruit, you've got it. I'm the vine. You spring from me. So, very vivid picture. And he gets down to details in verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, 
He, that is the vine dresser, takes away. Every branch that does not does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And then in verse 3, uh, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Uh, let's look at those. The role of the heavenly vine dresser, that's his father in heaven, is twofold. One, he gets rid of the dead wood. And two, he prunes the living wood such that the potential for fruit bearing is improved. Now, this isn't rocket science, right? I would assume we've got a few green thumbs in the room, probably many of them. I think your thumb tends to get greener as you grow older. My thumb wasn't very green when I was younger. Uh, I killed about everything anybody ever gave me. Uh, but as, as you grow older and that kind of thing becomes more important or you want to take something home from something like a funeral and you want to keep it then you want to take care of it then you want to make sure it survives um, there's a plant that was in the office that I've been using for a couple of years or so now uh, which is one of those vines that'll grow down and, and run on the floor if you don't pin them up on something and uh, it's been about two years that I've been pouring uh, my coffee, which I don't drink very often, or uh, my water with the bubbles in it, which some around here have said is surely going to kill it. But it hasn't. It actually likes it. Um, or orange juice or whatever, and then water regularly. But I've, I make sure they give it other than because you can't just live on water. You need vitamins and nutrients and that window doesn't give much sunlight for photosynthesis. But whatever I've done, it's worked well. It's all over my bookshelves. And laying on, the, on the, the counter, and I didn't bring them because I tend to shy away from visual aids when speaking. But there's green leaves all over. And then there's a yellow one that was hanging down and just about to fall off this morning. And there's a few brown ones that I picked up off the floor. And this is kind of a, a weekly routine. That one that's brown and shriveled up will be thrown away. I don't keep them. And the yellow one is no longer abiding in that vine. Now, the green ones are abiding quite well. And I don't know, it's not a, a fruit vine. You don't really get grapes off of it or anything like that. Though, when we get relocated in the house built I do plan to put some muscadines somewhere um, but this is the picture that he chose to explain to us the necessity that we remain or abide in him if there's any hope for any fruitfulness for his glory and the glory of his father uh, the figurative language here has caused no small discussion theologically over the ages as to whether or not we've actually got the basis for one being able to lose one's salvation. If you've got a branch that's connected to Jesus that is then cut off, does that mean you can lose your salvation? We've got plenty of theological basis to answer that question, no. It does not mean that. Figurative language can sometimes have its weaknesses when we're looking at certain things like that. And in the next statement, he's going to tell us uh, that that's not the case. These men are clean. Um, 
But if we must look at this as a vine, which is Jesus, and branches with a real connection to Jesus, and then some of them being cut off, then just back up to chapter 13 and talk about Judas, who had a very real connection with Jesus for about the space of three years, such that the men who are headed to the garden are going to be very surprised when they see what he does. He just had the, the actual seat of, 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 of importance. Only John's the one that knows what's going to happen. So, really, just if, if that's not good enough, think of your involvement with the church over the time that you've spent in a church for maybe most of your lives. Do we really have only two categories of those that love Jesus and act like Him all the time and then those who hate Jesus and would rather Him be dead all the time? Or are there lots of Christians who sometimes act like they love Jesus and every now and then they act like they hate Him by what they're doing or they disappear or they break our back or they say something hateful or they deny Him three times? And what did Jesus say? You will follow me later. The denying three times didn't negate that he will follow him later. So yeah, we, we, we're all over the map sometimes as, as branches. But the good thing is he prunes us. He prunes that out of us. We'll get to that here in a second. So Jesus says, you are clean and you're clean by my word. And it would make sense if he'd have used the word that we'd translate prune But really, clean goes back again to chapter 13, where after he said, one of you is going to betray me, and then the foot washing, and Peter uh, protests, and he says, you're clean. All of you are clean, except for one of you who's not clean, which means you can be washed and not be clean. Clean has to do with with the heart. And he says that you are cleaned here, and in some way this matches with the pruning as well because he says here clearly maximum fruitness means pruning is essential further the fruit of the Christian service is never the result of allowing natural energies and inclinations to run wild I put that in here too you know since the garden of Eden and the curse on the ground any landscaping you have at home that's pretty to look at there's been some pruning involved. Um, to say, son, go out and mow the yard is just another way to say, go out and prune the grass. Right? Edge the grass. Cut back all the stuff that's trying to grow into the grass. Keep the grass out of the mulch bed. You know, they just want to go everywhere. This tells us that the natural inclinations of even the children of God are not necessarily what's most useful to the Lord. He's going to prune some of that wild growth out of us. Hebrews 4.12 is a good verse for this. The, the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, capable of a fine distinction between joints and marrow, the soul and the spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's, that's the pruning mechanism of, of the hand of God. He says in verse 4, Abide in me as I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me 
and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. That's, that's like saying the same thing from many different angles here. Sounds repetitious, but it's, it's making sure that you get the point. You could trade the word abide for attached to, if that helps you, or to remain, remain in me, I remain in you. Attach yourself to me, I'll be attached to you. The picture of the vine and branches is, however, stretched a little. Uh, when it, it is said here that the branches are given the responsibility to remain in the vine. I don't think it would do me much good to walk into my office and look at that vine I just spoke of and say, now you make sure that you remain on the vine here. I don't want to find any of you yellow tomorrow or on the ground brown and dead. That, this, that's the difference between using an example and then talking about what he really means. Disciples. Remain in me. Stay with me. Attached to me. Connected to all the stuff that you need through me. Uh, The continuous dependence and full reliance on the vine, that is Jesus, is the only way to bear fruit. That's the purpose of 4 and 5. Severed from the vine, one dries up and withers. I remember there was a really nice muskydine vine in Virginia at a friend of mine's house who was living in the house of his grandmother who was someplace else. It's beautiful. We got two five-gallon buckets worth one time. And then she had a friend who came by unannounced to make sure that the grass stayed away from it and rounded up all that grass under the vine. It only took about a month. It killed the whole thing. It was gone. The vine was gone, and believe it or not, the branches died too because they're attached to it. Um, My wife had this arrangement on the table. Um, I don't know which one of you sent it over or put it together, it had flowers in the middle and then this greenery that was kind of stiff around the edge. That green stuff lasted for a month, two, maybe two, month, two months, just stuck in some water. All the flowers died within a week. It was like the Energizer greenery. Whatever it is, if you want it to last forever, use that stuff. But it never bared fruit. And even though you might turn it into a cutting and it would grow roots... And maybe shoot up. Well, then that's that. But that's roots. There's no fruit. There's a limit to what you can do detached from the Lord. Is, is the whole thing Jesus is trying to tell his disciples. Now, make no mistake. Again, this is where the agricultural illustration has its limits. There's actually a lot we can do without Jesus. You know, you shouldn't be surprised. Most of the world doesn't know him. You can raise a family without Jesus. You can earn a living. You can be a nice neighbor. You can recycle without Jesus. You can actually pastor a church without him too. And Lord only knows when I get to heaven how much I'll realize the extent of what I tried to accomplish in my own power. Getting in my own way. 
Um, but there's an awful lot we can do as supposed branches thinking we're connected when we're really not. Um, look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned because they're no longer useful to the kingdom. So in verse 6, Jesus has left no place among his followers for fruitless disciples. Verse 7, if you abide in me, my words abide in you, ask what you want, it will be done for you. By this my Father's glorified, that's how I glorify the Father, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. I glorify the Lord when you glorify me. And you glorify me by bearing fruit. So I'm going to set you up to bear fruit so that I can glorify the Lord. But the fruit has to be my fruit, or really you're just glorifying yourself. We talked about this last week. Uh, He's not promising to gratify every whim of his children. But so long as the believer is seeking the Lord's will in his life or her life, Jesus would grant every request that would help them accomplish his end, not their own. And I thought this is probably the best part to ask this question before we get too far what is this fruit that we're actually talking about? Is it just, you know, uh, make it whatever you want it to be? I don't think so. He's not necessarily specific here, right? And most commentators are going to say this is soul winning. Uh, how is a Christian more fruitful than to do exactly what was given to him in the Great Commission? Yes. I believe that is part of it. But contextually speaking, this is Jesus to his disciples. He's been with them for three years. I don't think he's going to jump ahead to the book of Acts on them and confuse them right here in the moment. He's been talking an awful lot about looking like him. He's been talking an awful lot about loving each other. How? Like he had loved them. He just spent an entire lesson on washing their feet as their servant. All of these factor in with fruit. Anytime you have a person under the wrath of God, guilty of sins that began in the Garden of Eden, changed wondrously by the grace of God to look more like God and less like themselves, and actually bearing the image of God, then you've got fruit. Wouldn't you say? Same as what John was saying when he introduced him. I need to decrease. You need to increase. That's the whole business for this pruning anyway. To make you look more like Jesus and to bear more fruit. So that's what the fruit is. Uh, it's been debated. And I, I only raise this because so many of the commentaries just want to leave it at evangelism. The best evangelism comes from people that look and act like Jesus. Some of the most, some of the most brave evangelists I've known were some of the most obnoxious people I've ever known. Sometimes you can get in your own way. Remember, some of the things we say as Christians can make the world go. 
<laughs> I want nothing to do with that. Now you got to know that they hated Jesus and they will hate you. But the way in which Jesus dealt with his enemies and who he will now call his friends was loving and kind. He washed the feet of the man who was about to betray him. So this fruit and the request that he grants has to be asked for and will be answered in as much as it applies to the will of his father. So what do we say about this? Let's start making some points. And because there's so much repetition, we are skipping around in the passage a bit. But I think now we've got enough that we can start. And we'll wind up with three points. The first is this. To abide in the vine of Jesus is to first get pruned. There'll be three of them. They all sound the same. To abide in the vine of Jesus But first you'll get pruned. And that is to say those who learn to abide stay put for the pruning. You want to abide in Jesus and and remain a branch that, that stays connected to the vine? You will be pruned. How many of you think that's going to be fun? Invigorating. Enjoyable. We know better than that. If we've been a Christian any time at all, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt you real bad sometimes. It was the man after God's own heart, David, King David, who said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Then he said, It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. And why is it that we need to be pruned? We've got verses that tell us, We're new creations. The old has passed away. Everything's become new. What's what's this pruning business? Why do I need pruning? Well, because even though we're redeemed, we still are sinful and we still sin routinely. Sometimes that sin makes such a mess that a lot has to be cut off. Sometimes it's not that at all. We've been fruitful. And after a vine's been real fruitful, there's still a lot of stuff that needs to get cut off. Just talking about what we know about vines in nature. But then would you agree or disagree that it is our human nature to want to actually do our own pruning? How many of you rather do it yourself? I can handle that. I got Amazon that'll send me my books when I when I detect a spiritual flaw in my life. I'll just get a book and read it and fix it. Or I don't need anybody to tell me I know when I'm wrong. I'll just pray more or read more or I don't know. Tell my wife she has one time in my whole life to tell me when I'm wrong. I'm trying to be ridiculous on purpose here, right? (laughs) The problem with self-pruning is because we are notoriously slow to cut off the thing that really needs to go. Right? And if the vine dresser is doing his pruning well, there's really not much left the vine when he's done it right he's trimmed us very close to the vine where there's very little branch that's what pruning is even though we know the best and most attractive parts of us spiritually speaking came from the cutting we would have avoided 
we need to also remember God's hand is never more near than when he's doing his pruning. So when it hurts so bad that you just can't stand it, know that you're, you're in God's hands. He's the one doing the work. And it's for the purpose of fruit for his glory. So in addition to getting pruned, when you abide in the vine of Jesus, you're going to get loved. And again, the agricultural metaphor kind of has its limitations because it does little to explain the love of Jesus for his own. We get that from verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So the verbiage has changed. He had been saying abide in me. Now he's saying abide in my love. Just like I've abided in my Father's love. This is not some mystical experience. There is an entire truckload of goofiness that could be stuffed in a word like abide. Wouldn't you say? Dude, you just need to abide in Jesus. All the rest of the stuff will take care of itself. That might sound cool. There's a lot more to it than that. And a lot of that abiding, remember, go back one point, hurts real bad. The love part here, to the tune of how God loves His Father and His Father loves Him, and that's the way He's going to love us and the way He expects us to love others. That's the type of thing that really words kind of fall flat. They're, they don't have the ability to quite explain all of that. Um, and this is where we never need to forget about the tie between love and obedience. There's a lot of love mentioned in verse 9 and 10. But also in verse 10 we're reminded of keeping those commandments. Remember the difference between love and truth and truth and love and one without the other? So if we're going back to the idea of what this fruit looks like and we understand it by the means of what we've got there in verse 9 where you've got the love between the Father and the Son and then the love between the Son and His disciples and the love in a moment between the disciples and each other. Just look at the way Jesus did it. How, how did he love what we saw of him while he was here? Well, there was unity with him and the Father instead of rivalry. There was trust instead of suspicion. There was humility rather than self-assertion. So it makes sense that that must be the way Christians' common labor looks, right? Would you say that's the way a good church functions all the time? Where there's no such thing as rivalry or suspicion or self-assertion. No, that stuff crops up quite a bit. That's why we're supposed to remain on the vine. Because if left to ourselves... Even as branches, you leave the yard alone, 
during the summer, what you see are each one of those branches vying for their piece of the sky to absorb the rays of the sun and they'll choke out just about any other branch in order to do it, right? And then when the gardener, the landscaper gets back, he gets those pruning shears and sets it all straight because you want it all to bear fruit uniformly, right? There's no room for that kind of stuff. That stuff gets pruned. We see none of that in the life of Jesus. Verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So we're still talking about love, even though we're talking about pruning. Then verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. So now we have the, the, the reference to the greatest love of all where anything else must be less. The love that moved the Father to send the Son into the world to gather His people into Himself attached as branches to a vine, the same love is required of us. And then if you look at 14 here, this kind of colors up this idea of love and what it looks like. He says, You are my friends... If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. What does that mean? And who, who is the friend of Jesus? Well, to start with, again, those who do what he commanded. What he has commanded. That's easy. But the obedience, as with last week when we read it, it is not what makes them his friends it's just what characterizes his friends what he's saying here is the difference between the slave and the friend is that the slave is somewhat of an instrument to his owner he's in a, like a tool in the toolbox a slave is never given reason for the work assigned to him. He must perform it because he has no other choice. Jesus says, that's not you at all. You're my friend. A friend is informed of his master's thinking. He enjoys his confidence. Such that he has the choice to obey from a sense of privilege. Maybe this fits. I don't know. How about the teacher in high school or college you learned the most from because you, you liked the guy? He's somehow on your level. He spoke your language. And you're actually proud to work hard on that paper and you enjoyed getting whatever grade it was. As opposed to the one who just said, you know, here's the stuff. Maybe I'll tell you what's on the quiz. Maybe I won't. It's just a job and you have to pass. And if you don't, you fail and who cares? Or the, the, the boss out of all the college or high school jobs you had where the guy was, was just a stand-up guy. And, and you were proud to make him money because he paid you well. Maybe that fits, helps with this. But one thing we ought to make sure is also clear from this passage the friendship we're talking about here is not reciprocal. 
you can't just reverse the, the, the verse and say that uh, these friends of Jesus can turn around and say that Jesus can be their friend if he does what they say. It doesn't, doesn't work like that. There's, there's all types of places, even in the Old Testament, where people are called the friend of God, but never in the Bible you find where any people said, God's my friend. And any time you're rolling down the road and one of those is goofy, that's the third use of goofy in this sermon today, but I don't know what else to call a, a guy who wants to call Jesus one of his drinking buddies. That's ridiculous. You probably know the song. Some of you are smiling. I remember when I was a kid, when uh, certain movies would come on the TV, when they used to scrub them of all the stuff you couldn't or shouldn't see. So if it was on TV, it was probably safe to watch. Me and my brother used to watch on Channel 9. That was out of Chicago. I think it was called the Superstation then. But we watched the Blues Brothers over and over again. And when, there was, when, 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 when Jake said that he had an understanding with God and then told those nuns they were on a mission with God, like, like they're all buddies. And even as kids, we knew, you probably ought to take that out too. They're you're struck by lightning. This, this is awful. There's no such thing. Because we're still the creation and he's still the creator. But to have the creator say, I consider you a friend such that I'll show you my agenda. I'll let you know what I'm doing. You want in on it? You just ask me. Anything that coincides with my plan for this world and their redemption, you've got it. In fact, it glorifies me to see you bear fruit in that way. So Carson tells us, when we're looking at verse 16, um, just when the disciples might think, and with something like that, I'm the friend of God. He tells us, as is so often in the gospel, where there's the slightest danger that the disciples will puff themselves up because of the privileges they enjoy, Jesus immediately forestalls any pretension they might have. And in this final analysis, his followers are privy to such revelations, not because they're wiser or better, or consequently made the right choices, but because Christ chose them. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. That's why you're my friend. And that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father's name, He may give it to you. We'd like to think that the initiative is always with us. I walked forward. I said the sinner's prayer. I did this. I did that. No, we were chosen. No more than these disciples chose their teacher would we choose Jesus. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. It's not by works of righteousness, but according to his mercy, he saved us. I have chosen you. You have not chosen me to give shape to your moral and social ideals. For the purpose of bearing fruit, I have chosen you. So we're still talking about love. And in verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. But if you were paying good attention, you might know I skipped a verse. And that's just for the purpose of keeping this organized so that the outline might be more memorable. 
what was it first? You abide in the vine, you're going to get pruned. You abide in the vine, you're going to get loved. Verse 11 tells us, you abide in the vine, you're going to get joy. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Suppose if we had a big sign somewhere and said, Joy for free. You think anybody turned down the road and inquire? Uh, 2020 got you down? How about some joy? I'd want joy any day of the week, 2020 or otherwise. So what is this joy talking about? Is this just happiness on steroids or something? If Jesus says, I'm going to give you the joy that I have so that your joy can be full. And full means full, right? If we're having an experiment and filling up a glass, would we say that it's full at any point until it's almost ready to run over, right? Full. I have spoken to you these things that my joy may be in you. So it's Jesus' joy, whatever that is, and that your joy may be full. Best passage of Scripture, and I always like explaining Scripture with Scripture, is just write this down. This is Hebrews 12, part of verse 1 and all of verse 2. Hebrews 12, 2. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Sounds like pruning going on there. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. His plan of redemption is no more or less wondrous in a sense than his work of creation. That's the two works we see in the scriptures. The work of creation and the work of redemption. This joy that he's describing here is not unlike his joy when he made the world. And it's his joy to redeem the world, even if it cost him his own life. This almost seems to be like the type of word you would use to describe the joy that comes from a sense of accomplishment. Any of you like that? If you could like, you know, put that in pill form, I would like... uh, 50 milligrams of accomplishment today. That, that'd be good stuff. You could sell that on any street, I think. A sense of accomplishment to actually finish something. Well, this is his finished work on the cross to redeem those that were lost and estranged from him. That's his joy, and he's going to give you joy in what? A sense of accomplishment. What could that mean? Bearing fruit for him, looking like him. Winning the lost in the grand scheme of his plans for redemption. That's the joy. You remain in the vine, you'll get pruned. You remain in the vine, you'll get loved, even the tough part of it. But you remain in the vine, you'll get joy. Because you'll be connected to Jesus. And connected to Jesus, you're in on what he's doing. What's he doing? Changing the world. And for one day, 
bring it to himself at the marriage feast of, of the Lamb. As the bride of Christ. You know, he's been called the bridegroom. Well, he also calls himself the vine. Vine now, bridegroom later. Either one. That's a lot of joy. So what we've got, and this is in the words of uh, Carson again. Reworded a slight bit of it. But in John chapter 15, at least down through verse 17 and, and onward. John is speaking of the bond of believers to Jesus. A bond they are nothing without. A bond that originated at Christ's initiative and sealed at His death on their behalf. A bond that is completed by these believers' response of love and obedience after the manner of His love and obedience. A bond like branches to a vine that is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. Now, we talked last week about how you witness to those who don't know the truth of Jesus. And I'm all in favor of taking a long time to do it. And even if we're talking about the fruit that's described here as soul winning, you've got Jesus himself alive on earth for 33 years, three years of it worth of ministry. How many disciples did Jesus make? Twelve? No, one of them was a devil. Jesus took his time, didn't he? And he used illustration, and he used scripture, and he told them the whole story. But could you find a better way to talk about what it means to be a Christian, to get what you need, and to do what you're supposed to do, than being connected to Jesus like a branch on a vine? It's a beautiful story. And that outline again, to abide in the true vine is to get pruned, to get loved, and to get joy, or to get lots of pruning, and lots of loving, and lots of joy. Write it down however you want, but that's what we have on our plate for today. We're going to sing in just a moment, May the Mind of Christ My Savior. But before we do that, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our portion this morning. Lord, for lots of pruning and for lots of love and for lots of joy. Lord, thank you for giving us the truth, but thank you for being the true vine. Lord, forgive us for forgetting it and taking our eyes off the place they should be. Lord, forgive us for asserting ourselves or being suspicious or for rivalries. Lord, we'll have that space in the sky to feel your light on our face, but not at the expense of others. Lord, prune us where you need it to, be, to prune us. And may we know that it's for our own good and for your glory and for others as far as the fruit goes. Lord, do your work on us. May you be God and may we be quiet. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.